Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Please, 1 Peter chapter 4. And we pick up again in our series on the subject of the power of suffering. And we're winding down in the series, concluding it uh, over the next couple of weeks here. But what we've seen is examples in Scripture of those who've experienced suffering and how God used it for good in their own life and for God's glory Himself. And we've looked at all of those examples throughout the Scripture, but now comes application time. And the question that we need to ask ourselves and kind of where our mind needs to go here is, if God so chooses to allow us to experience persecution, if God so chooses to allow particular individuals or a church even to experience suffering, the question is, what will we do? How will we respond if God so chooses to allow us to walk through the fires of persecution? And so today, as we pick up the study again and we're winding it down, we're going to start talking about dealing well with suffering. Here's the application time. Dealing well with suffering. Dealing well with suffering means that, number one, we're going to have to have the right attitude regarding it. I know when my attitude is not good, I don't handle things very well. Um, this last year was real good pr proof of that. Uh, there are definitely some situations I did not handle very well uh, with the whole masking and COVID and, and things like that because my attitude was not good about it. And I think that you're, if you're honest, you'll agree. When your attitude isn't right about something, uh, you don't handle it uh, the best possible way. Having the right attitude involves keeping the right perspective about things. But in order to keep the right perspective about suffering or persecution, that requires us to be spiritually minded. But in order to be spiritually minded, in order to keep the right perspective, that means that we need to be full of the Word of God. But not just full of the Word of God, we need to apply God's Word and the principles of it practically in our life. You see the progression. You need to have the right attitude, but in order to have the right attitude, you've got to have the right perspective. In order to have the right perspective, you need, to, you need to be full of the Word of God, but you just can't have knowledge of the Word of God. It's got to be applied in your life. So the question then is, are you? Are you applying God's Word in your life? Consider this quotation from D.L. Moody. He said, Many Christians are like poor photographs. They are overexposed, but they're underdeveloped. Meaning they've got plenty of input from God's word, but what difference has it made in their life? It hasn't developed them. God's word is meant to change you. Spiritual growth is a commitment to change, and yet the human heart resists nothing as strongly as it resists change. We'll do anything to avoid change. 
those observations that D.L. Moody made were in reference to applying the truth of Scripture in our life. And application is the logical end of Bible study, but application is the thing that is often omitted completely, or at least mishandled. So as we are nearing the conclusion of this study on suffering, what I'm saying is I hope that you'll not neglect or avoid applying the things that you've learned. It's very important to ponder these things because they do and will have a direct impact on your life in the coming days. The primary question that we need to be asking ourselves as we think about the possibility of trials, as we think about the possibility of sufferings and persecutions is, again, how will I react? We're either going to react with the positive attitude and a spiritual mindset like the characters that we've studied in the Bible. Remember Joseph? All that he suffered in the end, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How was Joseph able to respond the way that he did through all of his trials? How about Job and others? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, the Apostle Paul, all of these that we have looked at, these characters in Scripture, we're either going to respond with the right attitude and the right spirit, or we're going to respond poorly, which will often compound the trouble or the problems. And so I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 4 as we consider dealing well with suffering. And there are four things that we're going to look at in this passage of Scripture that should help us with the right perspective, the right attitude in dealing well with suffering. We're going to look at, first of all, we should not be surprised by it. Secondly, we should rejoice in it. Thirdly, we should evaluate it. And then fourthly, we need to trust God in it. Look at this chapter, chapter 4, and look at verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy." If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God and if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel? What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. We're going to look at these four things regarding keeping the right perspective and the right attitude in dealing with suffering so that we can deal well with it. Don't be surprised by it. Secondly, rejoice in it. Thirdly, evaluate it. And fourthly, trust God in it. Let's pray and then we'll begin. 
Lord, I pray that you'd use your word again this afternoon in our lives. And Lord, may we be quick to apply, Lord, so that we are not hearers only, but doers. Lord, we don't want to be in the category of those that deceive themselves. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and grow us up in you. Lord, build our faith and our confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The first principle here in this passage is in verse 12 regarding dealing well with suffering. The first principle is that we should not be surprised by it when it comes. Suffering happens, persecution comes. Don't be surprised by it. Verse 12 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Now I want us to look at some phrases in this verse. The first phrase is, think it not strange. So Peter writing to these saints of God, these Christians who were experiencing persecution, he said, Beloved, think it not strange. The, this phrase means uh, surprise with confusion. He says, don't, don't be surprised and don't be confused about the persecution. It carries the meaning of being in denial about something. As if, you know, something is so obvious that it's happening, but you just refuse to acknowledge it. You're in denial about it. Everyone else can see it but you. Uh, and you're just confused. as though why is this thing happening? Well, you shouldn't be confused by it uh, because you ought to expect it, he says. This is the first attitudinal component that's going to help us through tough times is that we ought to expect it. Job 5 and verse 7 says, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's sort of like somebody asks a question that's so obvious that, you know, you, like they ask the question, uh, is man born to trouble? And then you say, do sparks fly upward? Well, yeah, man's born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. We're, we're, we live in a, a fallen world. We are sinners. We are fallen people. And, and it should be reasonable to not be surprised when trouble shows up. Now, that's something that we as Americans are not used to. But we should expect it. Other parts of the world and other countries, Christians live through persecution. And we are fallen sinners. And we are in a fallen world. And, it, and it, it's reasonable to not be surprised when trouble shows up. The whole context of 1 Peter is dealing with persecution and its in inevitability that it's coming. Peter is echoing principles found in other parts of the scriptures as well. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The very next verse says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, persecution is coming, evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. And if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus in that kind of a world, uh, don't be surprised that you're going to suffer persecution. In fact, uh, uh, in the middle of all of that, keep staying the course. Stay the course, Timothy, in spite of the persecution. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 John says, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. 
And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. John says, why did, why did Cain kill his brother Abel? Because his works were evil and Cain's were righteous and it made, brought conviction in his life and he didn't like it and it caused him to react and he killed his brother. So don't be surprised, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. The Christ-like life meaning the words that we say, the actions that we live by, the Christ-like life of a believer testifies against an ungodly world. That should be expected to result in a backlash of persecution from an offended, unbelieving world. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but it should not be a surprise when it does. Because Jesus said that kind of reaction is part of the cost of being his disciple. If you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Evil men, seducers, they're going to wax worse and worse. But in spite of that, stay the course. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. And so Peter says, beloved, think it not strange. Don't be surprised with confusion. Don't be in denial about the fact that persecution will come. He says, don't be surprised about what? The next phrase, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So don't be surprised and confused about the fiery trial, which is to try you. That phrase, fiery trial, it means burning calamity as a test. The word that's translated as fiery here was a word that was used for a furnace, but not any, just any regular furnace. It was a particular kind of furnace, a furnace that was used to melt metal to get the impurities out. It was a hot furnace. The fiery trial which is to try you. And they, in order to purify the metals, they would put it, the heat to it, and the heat would be turned up, and it would liquefy it, and it would cause the impurities to start to come to the surface, so that they could, and they called it dross, and so they could take the dross off the surface to purify that metal. That's exactly what the fiery trial is in the life of a child of God. A test, a burning calamity as a test to purify. Psalm 66.10 says, For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net, thou laidest affliction upon our loins, thou caused men to ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. The psalmist says that the Lord used other men to bring the fire of affliction into the psalmist's life, but the psalmist also says that the Lord brought them through that fire and brought them to a better place because of it. So here, 
the fiery trial is symbolic of the affliction that God allows or designs on purpose for our testing and our purification. This is part of having the right perspective and the right attitude about suffering. But God does not leave us to walk alone through that fire. Now notice the next phrase in verse 12. So, beloved, don't be surprised and confused about this fiery trial, this this furnace that is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. That phrase, some strange thing, it means foreign occurrence. In essence, what Peter is saying is we should not be surprised by sufferings as if they were happening to us merely by chance. It's a foreign occurrence that we have no, no say in, no control over or anything, and it's just it's, uh, it, it's something that is foreign. No, Peter says if it comes, it won't be random and it won't be arbitrary from God's point of view. Don't be surprised and confused about this fiery trial as though some strange thing happened unto you, some foreign random thing. No, if it comes, it's not going to be random and it's not going to be arbitrary from God's view. Persecution, affliction, and suffering are part of a life uh, that, 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 that should be anticipated if a person is going to be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. Those things don't interfere with God's plan. In fact, they're part of God's plan. And so, how do we deal well with suffering? First of all, don't be surprised by it. Don't be confused by it. Expect it. Secondly, we look at verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Number one, don't be surprised by it, but secondly, rejoice in it. Verse 13, the first part, he says, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. The word rejoice means to be full of cheer, and it means to be calmly happy. All right, you getting the picture here? You're right in the middle of the, the most difficult trial of your life, okay? The fire is, is, is hotter than it's ever been. It's something that you can't possibly bear. It's, it's like it's almost overwhelming, and it's, it's something that, that is uh, uh, just life-changing, and the Bible says to be happy about it and to be calmly happy about it. You got it? Everybody got that? You know, you're, you're, you're perfect at that, right? It just comes naturally, doesn't it? It means to be full of cheer, to be calmly happy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. All right. Okay, I understand what the Bible says, but I'm just going to say, hold up, hold up, wait a second, wait a second. 
We're to be calmly happy and cheerful about persecution and about suffering. Are you sure that's right? The question that comes to my mind when I read this is, why? Why are we to rejoice when facing persecution? And number two, how is it even possible? Well, we need to understand this principle. Peter is not saying to be cheerful or to rejoice at the mere fact of persecution itself. In fact, the physical nature of persecution is something the Christian should regret, actually. There's one commentator said this, It should be to him a source of great grief that men and women, because of sin and because they are so dominated by Satan, that they should behave in such an inhumane and devilish manner as this. The Christian is, in a sense, one who must feel his heart breaking at the effect of sin in others that makes them do this. Are you, are you following me here? What Peter is saying is that our rejoicing is not connected with the pain, the difficulty, and the suffering itself, but rather with the ramification of it. Look at the second part of verse 13. He says, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That's an interesting thought and an interesting phrase. He's not saying to just simply rejoice and be calmly happy at the physical nature of suffering itself. Like, oh, I'm suffering. Okay, I'm going to be happy. No, he says rejoice. Uh, It's not connected with the pain or the difficulty, but rather the ramification of it. What is the ramification of it? That I'm able to be a partaker of Christ's sufferings. That phrase, inasmuch, it means precisely or in proportion to. In other words, rejoice, be calmly happy at the persecution uh, precisely because or in proportion to that I get to be a partaker of Christ's sufferings. The reason we should rejoice is that we're privileged to share in the same kind of suffering that our Lord Jesus endured for our sake. Except I get to do it for His sake. Suffering for proclaiming His saving gospel. Look at the first part of verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Look at verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. The reproach or the suffering is in connection with the fact that I am identified with Christ and I get to partake in the suffering of Christ, the same kind that he suffered for me. Here's more incentive for rejoicing. The second part of verse 13 says that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Here's more incentive. He says that when His glory shall be revealed. The word that, that you see there, is a word that denotes purpose or a result. 
So he says, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that, here's the purpose or the result, that when his glory shall be revealed. That's simply talking about the return of Christ again. He says that you may be glad also with exceeding joy. That glad with exceeding joy literally means to be well off and to jump for joy. There seems to be something special for the Christian who faithfully accepts persecution as Christ did. When the Lord Jesus returns, that saint is going to be well off and is going to jump for joy. I don't know exactly all that that means or the impact of it all. But I know this. If the Lord so chooses to allow us to walk through suffering and persecution, we don't walk alone. And in order to deal with it well, we need to understand and keep the right perspective about it. That I should not be surprised by it, but also here's a privilege for me to experience the same kind of suffering that my Savior experienced on my behalf for me, except I get to do it for him. I get to do it for him. And somehow when he returns, when he is revealed, there's going to be something extra, an extra measure of joy for that saint of God. There's another reason for rejoicing, and that's found in verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. The third reason is that the Holy Spirit of God rests upon us. The Spirit of God rests upon us. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a real simple statement of truth. But I think it goes a whole lot deeper than just the surface understanding that the saint of God has the indwelling Holy Spirit in his life. Every person who is saved has the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it's not, it's not just that surface understanding of the Spirit of God rests upon me, as in, I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Notice this. He says, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. And then he says, for the Spirit. What does he say in verse 14? For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That word resteth. It means to refresh. And then you notice the spirit of glory and of God. This is an interesting phrase. That spirit of glory literally means dignity. Dignity rests upon you. The spirit resteth. It refreshes you. The spirit of glory is dignity. Now let me make the application here. It seems there's a special kind of refreshing of God's Spirit on the one who is particularly being reproached and suffering for the name of Christ. A special measure, a special enabling for him that he can endure that suffering with great dignity. I don't know if I'm messing this up or not, but this is a powerful statement. 
Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? Preaching Christ. And the world hated him so much that it caused them such great anger that they wanted to kill him. And they brought him out and they were going to stone him. And as they were stoning this man to put him to death, what did he say? Go back to Acts chapter 7. Hold your place here. Look at verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is an example of that Holy Spirit refreshing that came upon Stephen that enabled him to walk through that fire with dignity. Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. How did he respond? He responded well to the suffering. The Holy Spirit refreshed him by taking over and becoming the dominant power to lift him above the agony and above the suffering. The Bible says he being full of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God was dominating him. Throughout the centuries of church history, there have been many saints, countless saints, who endured persecution and martyrdom. And they have known the realities of Peter's words here. Even Peter himself. Where he says, here's a reason to rejoice. Because if you're suffering and being reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, because the spirit of glory, dignity, and of God rests upon you. It refreshes you. Here's where we don't walk through the fire alone. There have been many who have understood the realities of these words. You've all heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? One of the accounts is of Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was one that we would not necessarily agree with fully in all of his theology. Nonetheless, he was persecuted for his faith in Christ. He was arrested, and eventually he was burned at the stake by Catholic Queen Mary 
in the Catholic Church. And the reason was because he would not recant his beliefs in Christ. The account goes like this. Soon, an iron chain was brought and put around Cranmer, fastening him to the stake. Then, when the faggots had been piled up, the sheriff ordered fire to be brought. When the wood was kindled and the fire began to burn near him, he was seen by all who stood there to stretch forth his right hand and to hold it in the flames. There he held it so unflinchingly that all the people saw it burned before his body was touched by the fire. So patient and steadfast was he in the midst of this extreme torment that he uttered no cry and seemed to move no more than the stake to which he was bound. His eyes were lifted to heaven, and he often repeated these words. This was the hand that wrote it. He was referring to a previous disavowal of faith, an action that he had since reversed. This unworthy hand was the hand that wrote it. As long as his voice would suffer him, he would say these words, along with the words of the martyred Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, till the fury of the flames, putting him to silence, he gave up the ghost. The only explanation that we can give for the composure and the fortitude in the sufferings of Stephen, a man like Cranmer, and many others like them, was that the spirit of glory, the spirit of dignity and of God rested upon them, lifting them above that physical pain and that human fear. And my friend, what I'm simply saying is that same spirit is abundantly available to us. And brethren, how are we going to respond how are we going to react? I would like to think that by God's Spirit and His grace, I too would be so faithful if He so chooses to have me walk through the fires of suffering and persecution. But I know I certainly couldn't do that on my own. Dealing well with suffering is about keeping the right attitude and the right perspective. But in order to keep the right perspective, we've got to be full of the Word of God. But not just knowledge of the Word of God. Those principles have got to be applied in our life. These kinds of principles right here. Are you following that? If we are reproached for the name of Christ, we will not walk alone. He gives grace that is unique to the requirements of that suffering. I think that just there are times in people's lives where some trial, some hardship is just maybe at a time past in their life or even for other people, whatever this individual is going through would just be completely overwhelming, like beyond my abilities. And yet they walk through it with grace and with peace 
and with, with comfort and with confidence. How are they able to do that? Because the Spirit of God is resting. The Spirit of God and His, His grace that is unique to that trial rises to the occasion. It's more than just, it's more than just the simple or the, the, the basic understanding that I have the Holy Spirit of God. No, and praise the Lord for that. That is all we need is the Spirit of God. But it's an extra measure of God's grace is what, is what, is what he's talking about. Don't be surprised by it. Rejoice in it. Why? Because God's grace is there. His Spirit is there to help you to walk through so that you can walk through with dignity. I think it's just a powerful thought that helps keep us in the, with the right perspective. We're kind of running out of time here this afternoon. The, le- the last two is found in verse 15 and then also verse 19. The third one about keeping the right perspective is to evaluate it. Evaluate that suffering. He says in verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. We'll talk more about this in depth maybe next week. But basically what it means about evaluating it is to ask God for the discernment to understand the suffering's purpose, how it contributes to placing me in the center of God's will. That is not something that we should overlook. To be able to talk to the Lord, understand why the suffering is happening, and what is God's purpose in it. And then verse 19, ultimately, we need to trust God in it. Wherefore? Whenever you see the wherefore, you go back up and find what it's there for. He says, because of all of this, he says, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Trust God in it, ultimately. That's how we deal well with suffering. And we'll consider these more in depth next time. All right. But let's be doers of the word. Amen. Apply the scriptures in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, how instructive it is, how it furnishes us completely and thoroughly, truly. Lord, it perfects us. It completes us. Father, so that we can be what you want us to be. Lord, I pray that we would be serious-minded about application of the principles of God's Word. And Lord, let us not be flippant about these things because they have and they will have direct impact in our life. Thank you so much for providing for us all that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.